Hi, everybody. This is Shobert Shoberry back with The Shobert Show. Really excited yet again for another guest here. Um, Nick Greenfield is a buddy of mine who we've been very fortunate to uh, eight years ago. I can't believe it's been eight years uh, to be at the World Cup in Brazil meet there. Um, and we're both in tech and uh, he has a really interesting background. Um, so, Nick, thank you for coming. Uh, really pleased to have you and uh, love to hear about your uh your story. Thanks for having me. And next time, maybe we'll, we'll fly back down to Florianopolis to record this. Oh, maybe count me in. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's great to be here. Um, and yeah, I I've, I can't believe it's been eight years since the 2014 World Cup that we have another one coming up now. I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty excited about how the U.S. team uh, may perform, but it, it should be it should be an interesting one. And I yes. also don't know how to feel about the the current um, wh- whether or not it's 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 okay for me to to go. So I'm curious to get your take yeah. on that. Maybe a little bit later on on what you think about you know all the things going on and the const- even the construction of, of the new stadiums, which um, was needed to take it from you know zero to to fully. Uh, you know, fully functional and just kind of everything that's gone on ar- around the construction there is is fascinating and 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 terrifying and sad at the same time. Yeah, happy to. I mean, the World Cup is definitely one of those fascinating discussions, uh, along with the Olympics. It's kind of a hybrid of like uh, pure sports joy, na- pure national pride. Uh, you know, kind of the world coming together for something uh, unique. But then there's always, unfortunately, I feel like the political aspect. And the reality aspect of it, um, of what what goes on for sure. Uh, but yes, I can't believe time has flown by eight years now, <laughs> and we're we're about to have the the, the second World Cup in uh, in Qatar this year. And I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty amped. I'm hoping I don't want to jinx anything. The U.S. is pretty much ready to go, um, and a few other countries too. Uh, my parents were there from Iran, made it as well. So pretty exciting times. Um, and then. Uh, Tell me a little bit about who Nick Greenfield is. Sure. Um, a contradiction, a, a giant walking contradiction of, of hopefully many different things. Um, but I, I was born um, born on the East Coast and grew up in Maryland and, um, you know, have always kind of fashioned myself an, an athlete and, and recognized relatively early on that I probably wasn't going to be an elite athlete, but, but nonetheless um, has really been a, a big part of who I am and, and really a competitor at heart. Um, yeah, I've, I've been ever since I was, you know, ever since I can remember, but certainly five or six, I'm trying to compete and always trying to be, you know, be the best. And I think sports is a great, a great example of that and, and has played all the way through, you know, my, my school, um, where, you know, I think many of my friends and I were highly competitive academically with each other, um, more, more so than maybe, maybe it was healthy, but, um, you know, ended up creating a drive and and a passion. And that led to, you know, college and I played ultimate Frisbee in college. Um, and that was, you know, incredibly fun. And I, I never thought going into school, you know, growing up playing football, baseball, and basketball that I would end up, you know, playing what was, you know, the equivalent at the time of professional ultimate Frisbee after college. Um, but, you know, that then drove me, you know, again, into kind of the startup world um, where growing up in the D.C. area, you know, I always thought I would end up in politics or end up in sure. diplomacy, international relations. Um, but I caught the startup bug at Stanford in, in you know, 2010 or so and have been in it ever since. So um, today I, I'm, um, 
you know, based back on the East Coast after eight years in California and the CEO and founder of a company called Candid, uh, but have had a pretty awesome journey in the startup world for the first, you know, 10, 11 years of my career. And there's, there's hopefully much more to go. Yeah, that's, an, that's a great story. And I know uh, you definitely have a well-rounded background, even with different languages you speak. Uh, you're also, uh, interestingly, uh, very much into health, uh, that which I feel like almost relates to starting this company, right? Uh, you want to talk a little bit about like how health conscious you are and uh, you're one of the most healthiest people I've ever met, honestly. <laughs> I, yeah, I grew up, I grew up in, a, in a household where there was no meat, there was no alcohol. Um, there was, wow. you know, the very, you know, my dad really early on was, you know, highly focused on what were the ingredients? Was everything organic? You know, mm -hmm. the dangers of GMO. So I grew up with kind of all of that as my my background. And again, my, you know, my friends used to tease me about it. But I think as we move forward now, you know, more than 30 years later, it's actually turning out that, you know, he was right. And I think a lot of the, the, the things that I was raised on, which for me are natural. So I, I don't drink. Uh, I don't eat meat. I'm, I'm vegan, you know, gluten-free. I don't eat soy. Th th things like that, where kind of you look at it and you say, ah, eh, you know, when faced and, and with the luxury of opportunity, where I don't have to, and I get to, you know, I, I don't have to today, at least, you know, struggle or find it difficult to make food. I like cooking. I like do, kind of doing my own thing. Um, it allows me to, you know, be, you know, make the choice of what I put into my body. Um, and I think right. that that's always been for me super important. And you combine that with exercise. And I think you end up in a, in a pretty good place. You know, we, we are very much a consumption driven society. And I certainly am a consumer of all different kinds of things. But at least when it comes to food and exercise and just general nutrition, I'm a big believer that what you put in your body and what you surround yourself with from an energy standpoint, a sleep standpoint of trying to sleep, you know, eight hours every night, these are the basic foundational building blocks that if you do them the right way, they give you the best shot of success. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I do believe in the whole mind, body, soul, really understanding and everybody's body is very different and really understanding that, um, from the bare basics of like your body mass to like your allergies, um, to yes, uh, your basic food intake. And yeah, you talked about sleep, um, in a traditional sense in the startup world, that is something in the past was like, those who slept less was much more a, a successful entrepreneur. You just maximize time. Uh, in reality, you you lose it over and over um, based on the the lack of energy and sleep and con consciousness you you do actually have. Um, and it's fascinating that your parents uh, reminds me a little bit of my fiance's family that grew up here in Marin. Uh, that they were very focused on uh, organic and finding these type of foods. I know my mother was very much into this too, but like it was very difficult <laughs> thirty years ago. Now the movement is just fascinating. The entrepreneurship in these. Uh, food industries from companies, I could just name drop a few like Siete that does food uh, with alternatives for like Latin food and, and products to like Oat House. You could get really good granola. Um, so it's pretty exciting to see stuff like this now in the last several years. And I th personally think, um, you know, with the, the, you know, the COVID and what's going on with um, basically the pandemic and working from home, uh, people realize like you definitely have to focus on your body. Uh, and then as your childhood, you're talking about athletics and you focus specifically on the, the, the notion of competition. So the, the competition you were said about sports and schooling, 
uh, do you have an example of this? Were you into like, uh, just like who had the top grade to like uh, debate? Because uh, I, I did debate. I did, uh, I did uh, fake court cases <laughs> and, uh, with some of these like uh, clubs. Uh, so th- that was something that got me really intrigued. Uh, besides obviously doing like basketball and, and other sports. Uh, so what were some of the sports and like actually uh, extracurricular you did as a kid that, you know, you, you think really led into like what you did in college and actually beyond? I grew up playing basketball in, in DC in, you know, one of the most competitive kind of junior basketball regions in the country and, you know, was constantly playing against kids that were not only you know, better than I was, but significantly larger and more athletic. You know, it, it reminds me of a time where, um, you know, I was playing for um, this this Police Boys and Girls Club. Um, so in, in D.C., we have a league that's the Police Boys and Girls Club League. And the different, you know, the different sections of the city have their own Boys and Girls Club. And you go and you travel and you get to see different parts of the city. And, you know, yep. my my team was Northwest D.C. oriented. So, I think we were, I think we were about half black, half white, very, you know, diverse group of folks from kind of all over the city and actually, you know, the suburbs, but every other team we would play would be from, you know, really rough areas in DC. And it was a great eye-opening experience to, you know, I, I had the, the, you know, the vegan parents who, you know, great nutrition, well-rounded opportunity, you know, this is what the world will look like. You can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer. And we would go play against kids who, you know, for them, like basketball was the opportunity to, to get out. Um, and yeah. it shows you the importance and power of, of passion and focus in competition where, you know, we would play against kids who'd be playing basketball five or six hours a day because that was for them, that was the exit. That was the opportunity. And they would smoke us, right? Like it wouldn't be yeah. close enough. I mean, I played, I played one year, um, in, in our, in our AAU Beltway league in DC played against, um, Michael Beasley and Kevin Durant. Wow. And they, they beat us 92 to 27. So you, you just start to see kind of what greatness and what focus and competition mm. looks like and how even people from, you know, especially people from backgrounds that are, that are more challenging than you, those who rise to the top from a competitive standpoint are always the top performers. And I think that's what, what you see, especially in Silicon Valley, where there is such a high percentage of first-generation immigrants who, or, or, or you know, people whose parents came to the States and they're the first, they're first-generation Americans who start some of the greatest companies because right. that need and desire and that ferocity that comes from the things not being given to you and having to really, really work and compete for something in that drive, well, you know, I would say innate in many of us is even more powerful, I think, in, in people that are coming from places of need. And so I think just seeing that and growing up, growing up with that as a kid, as, as someone who was fiercely competitive, you know, I, I try to at least, at the, you know, at the very least imitate and have that kind of that sense of, of, of uh, almost borderline, you know, desperation. Of, the, of like, how do you really develop the chip on your shoulder to perform? Because if you don't, whether in business or in sports or in, in most walks of life, if you don't, if you don't figure out how to, what drives you, what gets you to, you know, really move the ball forward, you yeah. won't do it. I think you talk to people at my company, they, they certainly feel that of, of the way that I behave. And I grew up incredibly lucky in, you know, a background where I got to go to private school and, you know, yeah. my parents were incredibly loving. My love tank was always full. 
right? If if you if you read the um, if you you read the book about love languages, um, but I think in order to be a really great competitor, you got to have something a chip on your shoulder that drives you, and so figuring out what that is is really important. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to actually go off on what you said. That when you see the bar of excellence from whatever it is for you, it was like when you played, uh, you know. Beasley and Durant in DC and you, you saw the score and you saw just how good they were. And obviously they're still pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, you could probably argue Durant probably is still the best NBA player right now at his age, uh, without the injuries, uh, that, that, uh, you know, you had to step up and, you know, do what you want at that level. Uh, a good example, just kind of in parallel with myself, I went in my high school, Sarah, it's a competitive private league. And, uh, even to just get to into the sports, um, in, in the high school was difficult. Uh, when I went in, uh, Tom Brady just graduated. Uh, so I just missed him by literally, uh, half a year to see how well he played, but the level of excellence from literally all the sports was at that level, you know, and the decade before was Barry Bonds the decade before was Lynn Swan. Um, but to, you know, to see people, when I went in, you're like, you have to literally be at your best to even make the 12 members of the basketball team. Um, it, it's another level. So like that. Uh, and then the other factor is you said, just um, seeing the level of excellence and the desire to do to be the best and, and go after your dream here in Silicon Valley, right? Like there's just the best of the best in one area. And I think, you know, Stanford epitomizes this and really uh, probably empowered Silicon Valley um, back, back in 50, in the fifties with HP as probably the poster child startup there. And then over time, it was like Yahoo and Google and, and obviously many others. Um, you went there and, and you said you graduated in 2010. So the two things I want to mention is like you, you went to Stanford. Uh, you saw this uh, Silicon Valley story. You saw the excellence in a high bar. What did you study? And secondly, uh, 2010, in my opinion, was the, basically the tipping point of Web 2.0 and the, the boom that we had. Where, for example, Silicon Valley and specifically San Francisco went from a town turning into a city with like the Salesforce Tower and, and public companies like Dropbox, Yelp, Airbnb and many others. So I'd uh, love to hear kind of your take on those, those years at Stanford and, and uh, what led you to get to Silicon Valley. Yeah, I gra- so I graduated. I graduated in 2011, which I, I would totally agree with you is it was right in that tipping point, right? Just post financial crisis where and if i look at the you know stanford ultimate team which you know is a big part of my college experience and what everyone did pre-2011 you know i think my team was like 15 of 25 of the you know the guys in the team were mechanical engineering majors and you know the, Mm -hmm. the careers that people had chosen in the years before were for the most part going into mechanical engineering or you know consulting or banking and if I look forward to the team three years after I graduated, I think it was like 22 of 27 were computer science majors. So mm-hmm. the way that the, the way that the school and the mentality, while it's, it's certainly not a business school by nature, in many ways, Stanford is the most business of the business, uh, you know, of the schools that are there, because right. so many of the kids that go there really kind of catch the Silicon Valley fever and, and bug while, while they're while they're in school. And I think the school certainly doesn't do that intentionally. I think it's frankly, they try to steer kids sometimes the other direction, but it's just the nature. It's kind of what's in the water there. Um, and, and yeah. you know, 
I want to, uh, I want to, I want to quickly like mention, I didn't go to Stanford. Uh, you know, I went somewhere close, but to me to see as an outsider there, I would counter argue there is some intention. Uh, so one, the proximity is, it helps like uh, to have all these companies and executives, especially the alumni network come back and forth to a certain extent, many of them, uh, and a lot of thought leaders come and teach courses progressively. For example, when I started in the beginning of the app store Stanford had the first iOS development class for any university. Um, and then over time, you know, I saw this with blockchain engineering courses and others. So like they are very progressive, uh, it, for other universities, they have to negotiate and talk about like finances and who's going to be the professor and engineers who has the skill sets. By the time they do something, something like that it takes about three to 10 years, to even start. Um, so, you know, that's the fascinating thing that Stanford just kind of runs with it. Um, yeah, and I think Stanford does a great job of identifying and selecting kids who are in school at the kind of top echelon to give them those opportunities and or to at least give them the opportunity to apply for those those opportunities. So the Mayfield Fellows Program, which I think has a different name now, you know, Kevin Sistrom was part of the Mayfield Fellows Program. Wow. And David Rust, who you know, was yeah. part of the, the Mayfield Fellows Program. And there are so many, you know, people who were part of this program that was geared in, you know, in design thinking, which, you know, was invented for, for the most part at IDEO across the street, right? And then brought over to, to Stanford as a, you know, the Stanford Design School. Uh, there were, um, you know, so that program, you know, helped generate entrepreneurship. But if I just think about my peers who started, you know, Alchemy and started M1 Finance and started Snapchat um, mm -hmm. and you know, started companies in the farming space and gone into venture capital. And it just like, it goes on and on and on and on. And I always try to kind of put my finger on, on what it is. And I, I think that, you know, it's the combination of proximity and the people who had come before that come back as part of that alumni network where all of a sudden you can kind of look up and you can meet somebody and have access. And, you know, there's no better, again, example for me than on the ultimate team at Stanford, my sophomore year, you know, the coach had moved out uh, in 2007 to play at Stanford. He then dropped out the day after nationals and went to work. And he was already actually working at Facebook and was one of the first engineers at Facebook. So we just had, you know, the 25 of us got to experience this guy, Will Chen, who was, mm -hmm. I think, one of the first 50 engineers at Facebook and his rise and, you know, the experience that he had going through that wild, you know, initial first five, 10 years of Facebook, we were then sponsored my senior year by Palantir, where three of the top, you know, five guys at Palantir had all played ultimate at Stanford. And so we got to go over there and we had Palantir on our jerseys and who would have heard of Palantir. And then of course, you know, it's become, it, it's become what it's become and kids from the team went and played there. And there was a really interesting kind of synergistic you know, synergistic thing that was happening. So I think the proximity, you know, if you look at San Francisco as this like, you know, almost bubble of te technological innovation, Correct. Stanford is that, but in like really, really concentrated doses with really, really smart kids who can kind of look out two or three years and see, oh, there, there are people who are doing this. I might as well try this. And you're kind of encouraged um, by, by those, by the alum there. And I think the school has evolved you know, tremendously at this point where it's like really now, I think the school is fostering more, but at the time it just felt a lot more organic um, and yeah. innovation, something that we would, you know, we were just thinking about and doing, and it really was the beginning of web 2.0. And I think the last component is the recruiting side. 
where the reason I ended up going into startups was because I went to a career fair and all the companies there were startups. So it was like, oh, I might as well go work at a startup because that was that was who was there, right? It was they were they could drive over and put up their tables and I got to meet all these companies. If I went Pretty to cool. Chapel Hill, I would never have had that opportunity because we wouldn't have had, you know, the 200 companies show up because it was easy for them. So I think that proximity is really important. Yeah. So I, I, I wonder if we could talk about it now, we could even wait till uh, later on because you're, you know, go to your company because uh, it's, it's so different now. Like it's fascinating, like uh, 11 years later due to, you know, the pandemic again, uh, the, the amplification of working from home. Right. And, or, or even like universities have to figure out this hybrid me- mentality or social distancing. So I could only imagine that that lifestyle for current students and graduates uh, is a little bit different from what it was when you and I basically, you know, started in the startup scene. Um, and, you know, Silicon Valley, the, the proximity, in my opinion, is still there. Uh, if you're here, there are people uh, since the pandemic, a lot of people kind of moved on, moved out. Uh, and uh, a lot younger generation are coming here. Uh, however, uh, it's interesting. I think tech is decentralizing finally, uh, where you can work anywhere and, and kind of bring brain power to that area as well and, and, and amplify it. Uh, and, and one perspective uh, is, I mean, granted, this is New York City and Brooklyn, uh, where uh, tech has actually done quite well in the last five plus years, maybe more so, and your company's there. So from Stanford, you got into the startup scene. Um, and I know I remember you worked at, uh, when we met, you were working at Lyft at the early days, um, the ride sharing company. How was that experience? What else, you know, besides Lyft, what were you doing at Lyft? Uh, what were you doing at uh, several other companies before you got into your own company and started that? Lyft was, um, before Lyft, Lyft was Zimride. And I met John Correct. Zimmer at a career fair at Stanford, the entrepreneurship career fair. And we had both studied abroad in Sevilla in Southern Spain. And he actually met his wife there. And so we wow. just started talking about that. And it was kind of nothing having to do with work or we just kind of hit it off on Sevilla. And it was amazing. Um, it was just an amazing kind of fortunate event. And I said, Hey, I'm, you know, potentially looking for a job. And I think I sent him a beer ad from Cruz Campo, which is the local beer there. And one thing led to another. And, you know, I ended up getting a job in sales at Zimride and Zimride was a ride sharing network. We'd sell closed system ride sharing, uh, basically, uh, social networks for universities and corporations. And within six weeks of my starting at Zimride, we had a competitor in the consumer ride sharing space, a Y Combinator company, which at the time was, you know, starting to become a thing, but wasn't really, wasn't really a, you know, a thing, but John, who was really competitive was like, all right, well, we need to start focusing on consumers. So I was kind of the only guy with bandwidth and I learned how to do performance marketing and learned how to, you know, hack emails and, you know, do all this kind of, I would call growth hacking stuff. And I launched a bus line to, you know, bolster our supply and our consumer business. And, um, we had, we then had a hackathon, I think maybe the winter, early winter, 2012. And, you know, John and Logan, who to this day still are, were incredible recruiters. And so they brought in an amazing team, but, you know, Zimride, I would say was a, you know, it was a middling business. I don't think it was going to go anywhere. And out of this hackathon was this idea to create a ride sharing company that would be uh, female drivers and female passengers. 
which is if you think about the lift pink, like that's originally where it, where it came from. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, the, it, it came out of the idea that Sidecar, which had just started and was kind of sketchy and Uber, which was black car oriented and expensive, there needed to be a safe version. And, and our, you know, our, our girlfriends and our wives weren't, they didn't feel safe in the network that was out there. So it's okay, let's create a female driver, female passenger only system. And it, it, it took us about maybe eight or 12 weeks and Sebastian, who was the first engineer and, and Frank Yu, who was the designer and, and Harrison, who was a designer, were working on kind of building this thing from the ground up. And, uh, and then I think maybe three or four weeks before we launched, we realized we wouldn't be able to get enough drivers if we were just, if we just had, you know, female only drivers and female only passengers. And so we made a a decision just before launch to actually open it up. But the idea of your friend with a car was, you know, was that was Zimride, right? That was the exact network. Some of our Zimride drivers who would drive between San Francisco and LA were the original community. And it was a very intentional business at the onset around community, your friend with a car, trust and safety, fr- fun with the, you know, the fist bumps and the, the mustaches that we put in front of the cars that Ethan had created. We would give these car stashes away at trade shows and conferences for Zimride. And so we mm-hmm. slapped those onto the front of the car. And it was, an, you know, this incredible moment where once we were, you know, 10 or 12 weeks in, I think like 20% of the first, you know, thousand users were people from my network. It was like my friends going from North Beach to Soma or, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you remember this, right? With with yeah. you know, and the whole crew, and we kind of ran the numbers. Like, if we keep growing twenty five percent every week, this is going to be a really big business. Yeah. And um, and that was when I think Zimride slash Lyft went from a okay, this is like a cool idea to you know, holy smokes, we've really got something here. And then Uber quickly followed with with a you know peer to peer equivalent on UberX and kind of the the race and the war was off. And I think the story from there is generally well known, though, though potentially skewed. And, and, you know, I feel like one day, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll write a book about the early days. Um, but that to me was an incredible moment, career defining in many ways, because I got to see an idea go from an idea to reality, change along the way as we identified what product market fit would look like, really recognize, I mean, we recognize in the first 12 weeks, the driver churn would be the number one problem for the business and, and driver acquisition was going to be really hard. And yeah. that was something that continues to this day to still be the thing that holds back Lyft and Uber from really, really scaling is, is that driver side and, you know, getting it going and, and launching it and putting it all across the country and going, oh my God, this is a service that everybody needs. And, you know, I'm in Miami right now and, and you talk to people here and they say, yeah, drunk driving was a massive issue in Miami. Correct. Yeah, as completely gone, right? I mean, not entirely, but like you know, it's totally changed the way that these cities operate. So that that really gave me went from like, okay, startups are interesting, you know, I'll, I'll try it out to like, oh my god, like I have to be doing this for my career. Yeah, it's fascinating. The whole Lyft and uh, Uber and the ride sharing, everything that the like again, you were at the right time, right place. Uh, I did meet Logan when he was doing Zimride, an initial kind of. Uh, concept exactly what you said was getting college students to commute and if you're if you're living in LA commute's a thing and and you were in Santa Barbara uh and you want to come home for the weekend zim ride back or uh in the bay area again like from SF to the peninsula or vice versa zim ride to and from uh and I, yeah when the, it's, inc- it's incredible that mindful you all were uh 
mindful of the fact that uh, this wasn't scalable. What can we do? It's focused on the consumer, the product, uh, the idea of the name was great. The name Lyft uh, is like a no-brainer. The pink and the color mustache up front was pretty creative. Um, and I, I do recall my first two rides. My first one was a female driver with a Honda Accord. And the, the first moment when I sat in uh, with my old roommate, I remember I was like, man, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've done this before in international countries. You don't do it in the U.S. because it just was awkward with, that, with the taxi system where you could hop in either with a friend or with a stranger and go somewhere, even if it's just a straight line in a cab or a bus. Uh, and, I, and I remember one of my first rides, you said Soma. Uh, I lived in Soma and I needed to get to a basketball game. So I lifted and, uh, and I remember Bloomberg wrote an article about the launch of Lyft and my, 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 my basketball story, uh, which is really funny that uh, that's the case. But in any case, uh, so Lyft, I mean, that, that was like a magical time. And did you basically with your growth hacking uh, experiences, you know, you went, I think after that to another kind of uh, product, very similar in the automobile space, right? Wasn't it like a Washio? Um, in was it in los angeles this time around or was it in the bay area i refresh my memory there um being the ambitious and and precocious uh kid that i was and and the one that i became mm-hmm. watching the lift story i said wow this is incredible but you know i'm a i'm becoming a cog in this wheel of 200 people i think when i left and it was you know i started i was a 12th employee at zimride and really one of the first few people working on lift because the the company was was focused on Zimride at the time. And, you know, I, I was kind of jack of all trades. So I said, well, why don't I go, you know, be, you know, a, a super early employee, you know, own 10 times as much of this company that I, that I would have owned Lyft or, you know, a hundred times more. And, and I'll go make, I'll go rinse and repeat, you know, some of the same strategies and apply them to the dry cleaning market, which was Washio. Mm-hmm. And I moved down to LA. Jordan, the CEO of Washio, was was actually one of our first Lyft drivers in LA, and he and I had stayed in touch. And we, you know, he recruited me o- over, I would say, a six month period to come down and join him in this endeavor on the laundry space. And I, it was it was actually a really really interesting peak time for on demand services. So on demand yeah. services at the time, Lyft and Uber were at the top, but you had you know, Cherry, which was Travis Vanderzaden, who started Bird. That was his company, which was um, car washes. Correct. You had Lux, which was parking. You had Homejoy and Handy, which were um, were house cleaning. Mm-hmm. So like all these things that were out there, and none of these things exist anymore because the unit economics, you know, just fundamentally didn't make sense. What year was this? 2015. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. 2013. I joined Washio in 2013. I left in 2015. Okay, and I think yeah. in that two year period, it went from, you know, some of these companies were raising crazy venture capital. I mean, this is like, you know, at the time, somebody raising, you know, $20 million in a series A was crazy, right? That yeah. was like, oh my God. Yeah. No, it's just like a, a blip. But yes, correct. I remember, uh, what was it? Um, Homejoy was one of those examples. I think they were also a YC company. Uh, so I, I remember the story, correct. And, and what we all figured out was that, you know, customer acquisition costs, lo and behold, as you scale, continue to go up. And retention, especially for on-demand services, is a problem. Because whether people take you off platform, which was happening with Homejoy, whether you had to acquire a supply, which Homejoy also had a problem with, or in the case of Washio, we would acquire com- you know customers at relatively low cost, but they would churn at pretty high rates. 
and the unit economics of our kind of core business in laundry, the dry cleaning side was actually very good. But between the last mile delivery and the laundry costs, the, the fundamental unit economics would make it such that that business was never really going to be able to truly scale. And it wasn't until probably a year and a half ago when Sense launched, which is a vertical SaaS company in the laundry space, which is toast for laundry, effectively. Sure. Someone actually figured out a way to take advantage of the, you know, this this massive market in the laundry space without building washing and you know washers and dryers. Got so, it. I was going to say, like, what would be uh, why did transportation, uh, you know, on demand transportation do well? And you, you pretty much narrowed it right now. Is basically you don't need to own all the NN. You just need to be the enabler because technically. Uh, you know, from the very beginning, Uber, Lyft, and even to a certain extent, you could say Instacarts and the DoorDashes of the world, they don't own the products. You know, they just enable people to, you know, the consumer to order on demand food or or a car. And then, um, you know, the drivers will come and bring it to them. Now it's on another level with robots and AI, um, which I think it's going to happen over time. It's still kind of early days. Um, but, you know, these companies are testing that out. And then after... Uh, your experience in Washio, what did you next? Did you, did I think you, you, you were one more company or did you actually, I think Candid, you've been around for a couple of years. What, and you were um, from between Los Angeles, you went to New York, correct? Yeah, a friend of a friend, a friend of a friend of a friend, I think, introduced me to the, the, the guys at Paribus, uh, which was a YC backed company um, helping automate price adjustments. So when you buy some, when you bought something on Amazon, we would automatically go in, see if the price changed and then filed a price adjustment claim for you and you'd get money back. And at one point, I think because of the way we had automated building this kind of bot, I think we were the second largest holder of Amazon pricing data and price changing data and receipts of any company out there outside of Amazon, because we built this incredible uh, platform that would help you log in, um, that we would basically log in automatically using crazy technology. And, um, and Amazon had actually shut down Google from, from reading their receipts because they just stopped sending receipts. You had to log into the platform to get receipts. And so it was this incredible business. We had about 25,000 users, Eric Wyman and Kareem Atia were the founders. They, they, they kind of hadn't really cracked and figured out growth yet. It was all from PR and, and I came in and we, we 30 X that business in about nine months, 30 X, yeah, 30 X it in nine months and sold to capital one. And in doing so, we unfortunately grew so quickly that Amazon got rid of their price adjustment policy. So our core wow. business, which was really like, you know, tracking Amazon on e-commerce, sure. um, in, in, we, we had to figure out other things. We launched travel and, uh, you know, had a couple other things going, but, but it ended up being that acquisition itself was, was, I think not a great acquisition for capital one, but their next one where they bought Wikibuy, um, which was kind of the stage was set by buying Paribus. Wikibuy became capital one shopping, which is now, you know, a gangbusters hit, uh, very, very similar where PayPal bought honey for $4 billion. Right. I think one bought, you know, Wikibuy for orders of magnitude less than that, and has turned it into, you know, an equivalent, if not larger business. So, you know, the, the, it's one of the interesting lessons around M and A, and it was the, you know, first company I've been a part of that got acquired. 
or going through that journey really showed me, okay, you can take the lift path, like go for broke, or you can sell your company relatively early on. And there, there's a really nice opportunity, you know, when, when you do that as well. Um, and the experience for me inside of Capital One, while really short, and it was just before I started Candid, was a, you know, six to nine month incredible learning experience of a wildly successful business that, you know, doesn't necessarily get the credit that they deserve, but, but is truly uh, the most incredible direct to consumer business that's ever been built. Yeah. It's, Capital One is, is an interesting, uh, like traditional brand. Um, I actually had a friend who's a software engineer, Paribos two, um, which sold in Capital One, you know, this is a company that does, you know, all the stuff you think of finance, credit cards to private equity and so forth for them to get into like e-commerce, pretty impressive. Uh, and to actually work with like really talented people like you guys, how was that experience out of, out of curiosity working for a big company? Did that help you uh, really unlock, you know, scale on a different level and what you've created now, you know, starting Candid as a company, has, did that uh, shed some light? Capital One was just, you know, when you think about people having their, for lack of a better term, shit together, Capital One really had their shit together, right? This was a you know, 25 year company that had, you know, put up consistently been, you know, profitable for a very long period of time, grew up when startups weren't really a thing, had to figure out how to reinvent themselves four or five different times, starting as, you know, a subprime direct mail driven, you know, credit card company and evolving into you know, one of the, the biggest banks in the, in the country and going through multiple cycles and the financial crisis. And, it was, it's, you know, just hearing the stories of the guys who were there for, you know, 20 or 30 years, it's, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't have the, the, you know, sexy, glorified, you know, Silicon Valley stories, but, you know, wow, just methodical and thoughtful and super data driven mm -hmm. and really, really an incredible, you know, company and organization of, of, you know, just constant change. And, you know, unfortunately, I think it is hard as a big bank to recruit and maintain, especially in, in, you know, this day and age, the best talent, uh, but capital one had a, you know, a, a model in terms of being able to recruit, not necessarily the best software engineers, which is the direction that they've tried to go. I don't think they've succeeded all that much, but in recruiting really top tier business analysts out of, you know, not necessarily the Ivy league, but the smartest kids from university of Michigan are probably smarter than the smartest kids who went to Harvard and bringing them into a place like capital one and using their analyst program to really develop and grow and, and build talent from within. So just, I, you know, kind of unlimited good things to say about the organization that, that, you know, some, some challenges as well, but they figured out remote work way before the rest of us did. So they, they've done things over there that I think have been, you know, years, if not decades ahead of their time. Yeah, like I said, it's a very it's, it's an interesting company that they evolve and they take advantage of like timeless uh, products, uh, timely excuse me products, um, and for them to acquire like Peribus and and um, you know do well after the, the post acquisitions is impressive. Um, let's talk about your company now. Uh, let's talk about Candid. Uh, how did you come up with this idea? Did you come up with some friends? Uh, you know, this is definitely not an easy space to get in and it's very competitive. Uh, there's a lot of legacy products out there. There's, um, so I wanted to get into, you know, how, what, when did you start this company? When did you come up with this idea with, uh, you know, your co-founders and, uh, yeah, I would love to hear more about it. 
Candid was so the original idea, the very, very onset of Candid sure. was um, was a, a friend of mine came and said, "Hey, you know, there's this market where the patents are expiring for Invisalign in 2017, and we think there's a good opportunity to get in using direct to consumer." kind of technology and we've got a bunch of market research and here's a, here's the high level. And they came to me and said, can you help us think about the idea? And at the time my company has just been acquired. I was very happy not working, you know, the like six or seven days a week for 12 to 16 hours a day that I've been working for the prior, you know, seven or eight years. But I, I said, okay, you know, I'm happy to happy to think about it. And, and the deeper I went into the space and actually not having you know, had orthodontics growing up and it was something I had thought about in the past, um, I, I, I became more and more intrigued and thought it was the perfect intersection of, you know, large scale, local focused, regulated, direct to consumer, you know, semi on demand, um, you know, selling a product that costs less than something else, which was kind of the hook for Paribus, all of these things coming together in kind of the perfect opportunity in a category which you know orthodontics global consumer revenue is north of 50 billion and growing to 100 billion i looked at the category and then saw you know this player who who we you know in many ways i think emulated though though they were not what we were trying to do but our business model was very similar in smile direct club that had gone from a you know 50 to 250 million dollar run rate in 12 weeks and was you know the the, the highest flying of the direct to consumer companies um, you know ended up going public just a, probably a year and a half after we founded Candid, I think they went public in, um, yeah, I guess in, in, in 2019, so maybe two years after at a $9 billion valuation. I mean, the thesis was really, really spot on. Um, and Who I wanted again? to start up Smile Sorry, Direct Club. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Which, yeah. which, by the way, their stock price is down, you know, 90%, right? So, mm-hmm. and their businesses, I mean... Uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on the future likelihood of success for their business, but I think the general take on the dental industry is that it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's not long for this world. I look at the, I, I look at kind of all of that, and I would say I would agree with all of it going into it. And there were just so many, you know, unknown unknowns, which I think has been just a consistent. A, a consistent component of learning and growing sure. and getting older. And they say, you know, the older you get, the, the less you, you know, the, the, the dumber you, the dumber you realize you were when you were younger, because you just, you don't, you don't realize that you think, you know, everything when you're 18. And then by the time, you know, you're 80, you realize, you know, nothing. I think that, you know, <laughs> what, what I've seen with Candid is that, um, you know, we've, we've grown and evolved a tremendous amount. We started as a direct to consumer business. We launched retail, we raised, you know, well north of a hundred million dollars. We scaled the business out, um, you know, got to you know north of a hundred million run rate in the summer of 2021. Um, but ultimately, you know, decided that just like with on-demand services to some extent, that you know, direct to consumer as a business model is really, really, really hard to make yeah. work, especially this day and age where advertising prices are going up. Which you know, I'll blame you for to some extent. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, um, you know, shipping costs are going up and all these things are, are kind of playing against the DTC space. And we were very fortunate that we had a, you know, a professional business, uh, that we were able to lean into. And so we, we fully pivoted the company in January of this year. Um, 
And, and I think I realized I may not have described exactly what my company does. We sell, um, a, we sell a product called Candid, which is a, a clear aligner that helps you straighten your teeth. Um, and we uh, went from being, you know, 100% DTC at this time last year to 100% professional as of January 24th. Wow. Okay. So uh, that is news to me. Um, and it's fascinating. I didn't actually know that the Invisalign had a patent until most recently, and you guys definitely leveraged that. Um, so you said basically you raise a lot of capital. Obviously, you need that to kind of go to market. You your ROI eventually worked out a couple in a year or two later. Um, however, you seem like you capped out. What is this professional services platform you guys have now? Like, what does that mean? So yeah, we used to, the way Candid worked in the past, just for some grounding, is we would sell you an okay. impression kit at home, or you'd go to visit a retail location, and everything would happen asynchronously through telehealth. So you would take your impressions and photos and send them back to us, or you'd get a scan and an x-ray, and, and then our doctor would be at home, and they would look at all of that. They would make a treatment plan for you, and boom, you would get aligners in the mail. And our professional business is very similar except you always start your journey inside a dental practice, which means that you'll see the dentist, they'll look at, you know, they'll look at your teeth, make sure you're a candidate, and then the same scans and x-ray will happen, and the dentist will be able to track your journey from the moment you get scanned all the way till the moment you're done using the Candid app. And the Candid app is the number one rated app in telehealth in the dental sector. Fascinating. 4.9 out of five stars. We've been called the Tesla of orthodontics, which I certainly appreciate. And uh, it was, you know, the idea is that you don't need to do 20 office visits if you're going to do a clear aligner or wires and brackets, straighten your teeth. You really just need a couple. And as long as your doctor can monitor you with telehealth, and that will enable you, one, to have higher levels of compliance, and two, to reduce the need for office visits, which are obviously timely and expensive for you and the doctor, you'll be able to probably get the product at a more affordable price. And, that, and that's what Candid Pro is. And we've grown tremendously in the candid pro space. So, you know, while we we cut, you know, all of our consumer revenue on January 24th, which is a massive top line hit to the business, I believe that our ability to build a long-term generational business is significantly enhanced by these changes that that we made and that's going to move the ball forward for candid, you know, on on a go forward where we're going to be able to acquire you know, tens of thousands of dentists onto our platform to offer Candid to their patients and yeah. dramatically increase accessibility for, for affordable clear liner treatment. So I'm really excited about this change. And after five years, it's pretty crazy to pivot the whole business and go back in many ways to a series A mentality. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm also, you know, secretly very much enjoying it. Well, kudos to you. I mean, five years, incredible journey and to pivot is not easy. Um, it sounds like you guys have definitely an interesting plan. It reminds me a little bit of ZocDoc, uh, but focused obviously on orthopedics uh, as an end-to-end -end solution. So that's incredible. And I know due to time, I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in like the future and here and now, and, uh, you know, people like yourself see things differently. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what's your thoughts on 2022? Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think this is a year that a lot of things will actually um, open up. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of growth will happen. And what's your thoughts on this year? And what do you think is going to happen in the next three to five years? That's pretty exciting for you. I am, I would say, cautiously optimistic from a, a return to some semblance of normalcy uh, for most of the population. So I think that 
a week or two from now. So call it, um, I don't know when, when the show will air, but let's say, you know, March one, I would say that most uh, folks who are not in, you know, in, in a dangerous, um, you know, or in a category of, of health where they really need to be super careful, will yep. return to some semblance of normal life in schools and, and other things of that nature, which I think will, will then kind of get the world back to, again, some semblance of normal from a travel and an entertainment standpoint. I think th- those things will, will generally be in a much better place. I think we will have a couple more variants that will likely and hopefully be significantly less potent than, than, you know, the initial variants. Um, we'll, we'll see what we, we get there, but I think that COVID will continue to be with us and will continue to shape our lives. I think we will, you know, at least with candid, you know, I would expect that some of our folks will go back in the office, but I think as you're building and scaling out a company, I think remote and hybrid work will certainly be, you know, front and center for, for most organizations on a go, on a go forward. And I think in terms of, you know, where the world itself is actually going, um, look, in many ways, things have never been better. Um, You know, access to technology has made information accessible at our fingertips. You know, we can be constantly, you know, poked and prodded and entertained. You can learn new things faster than you ever could have learned them in the past because of the access to information. You know, we just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, which I'm incredibly excited for discovery of new things out there in the world. These are the things that I'm really excited and positive about. And I'm super nervous about, at least domestically, um, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about the, the, you know, the partisan rhetoric uh, and the need to constantly, because yeah. of the entertainment cycle, one up each other in, 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 you know, being crazy. Uh, and, and I don't think that's necessarily good for the country. And I think, you know, you, I think the U S I'm generally of the opinion the U S is good for the world. There's some negatives as well, but Absolutely. I think the U S is good for the world. And I think we really, over the next few years need to figure our stuff out because we have bigger problems to solve. And, and you know, I think if we can tone down the rhetoric, uh, on, on both sides of the aisle from political, political standpoint, I, I believe that that will give us, a much better likelihood of addressing, you know, the core societal issues that that we're facing today, uh, that can, you know, not only bring down the U.S. but bring down, you know, a lot of other countries around things like climate change. So um, I would say cautiously optimistic in some areas, and, and certainly nervous in others. I think you addressed a lot of things uh, that most people would feel right now, um, and I would buy into like, yes, we're going to have a bunch of variants. This hybrid lifestyle is definitely here to stay. Um, you definitely need to build some grit um, still, uh, even though we're two years into this thing. Uh, but I, as you mentioned, things will come and go, and, and the, the, I think that things will get better. And yes, uh, politically speaking, you know, things there's a lot of rhetoric. Hopefully, um, the younger generation is kind of uh, ignoring a lot of it, be more on a progressive uh, movement, which I, I'm I'm seeing it. I mean, there's a lot of things like on a positive note. I, I've never thought I'd see, and I'm seeing it right now. Um, which is great. And I think, like I mentioned, technology empowering a lot of that progressive movement, which is exciting. Um, thanks again, Nick. This has been a lot of fun. I think it'd be fun to have you on more frequently in the future, but this is great. I'm really honored to have you as one of our first guests and I um, hope everybody who's listening in really enjoyed this and uh, tune in for future shows of the Chaubert Show. And again, Nick, have, uh, have a great uh, day. And um, you know, thanks again. You too. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye.